Amen. Thank you, brother. Let's go to the Lord and seek his help and favor and blessing on our time together in his word today. Father, it truly is by the work of your mercy, the fullest expression of your love, the power of your effective grace, Lord, intruding upon our hearts, our souls, our lives, is why we are here. Father, we exalt and thank you for the fullness of Christ, for the fullness of his rescuing work on our behalf, to now be declared just before you, to have a righteousness on ourselves that we could not obtain, we could not buy, earn, work for, or even hope for. But because of Christ, because of his excellent mercies, because of his unlimited, eternal storehouse of grace, we're your children now and can come before you And as it were, climb into your lap and to receive of you and to enjoy you. Father, truly, may we be sanctified by your word today. May we we delight in your holiness that we've received from you and live it out to please you, Father. Father, And to be that heart reflection of Christ manifested in love and proclaimed through your gospel. Father, may these, these virtues, these graces of Christ now be ours. May we not only read them and, and grant, be granted knowledge and understanding of them, but may we, by the work of your Spirit, appropriate them to our own lives and to the life of your body, of your church. And be lights into the world. Bless this time, Father, by the power and the work of your Holy Spirit. For we give you thanks and all praise and all glory. In Jesus' name, amen. It is my duty, my delight, my honor to, as Peter and Paul did on many occasions, to remind us to step back for a moment as we've, we've made our way almost halfway through, a little bit more than halfway through this chapter, this letter of Colossians from Paul to this dear and precious church and to us in the same manner, same likeness, of that preciousness of Christ, to, to step back and look at, look at Paul's exhortation here, fundamentally for us to put on Christ and, and what that looks like. In reality, what does that look like? Those chosen of God, where his kingdom, as I prayed, has been has mercifully intruded upon our hearts in the midst of our sin, 
upon his whom he then and now considers as, as holy, as beloved. Where now these, these virtues, these graces of Christ that we've been looking at are to now be a very distinct ruling priority in our lives, in our daily satisfaction to put on Christ and to put off all the vices of our previous life. We looked at compassion, that compassion of Christ, that, that kindness of Christ, the humility of Christ, the, the gentleness or the meekness of Christ, the, the, the patience of Christ. And we see these virtues that they are ours to be made real. They are, they are inseparable. They are all bound together. They are not unique, isolated virtues, but they are closely knit one to another. They are relational in Christ and to us because they exemplify for us selflessness. So our outward focus on him in his word and to other people, to be other-focused, to be self-forgetful is what these virtues produce in us. But let's get a fixation upon Christ from this verse in verse 12 before we move on in today's text in verses 13 and 14. I want us to rightly consider Christ. I want us to set our mind, our, our thoughts, our faithful vision upon him. Just look at his compassion. Think of the leper bearing that outward grotesque bacterial infection and all that it typified in sin. We see Christ reaching out, making the initiative, taking the initiative, reaching out, touching him, cleansing him, forgiving him. The paralytic coming through the roof of the house, the elderly woman suffering from the hemorrhage all her days, spending all her money on the doctor's who were unsuccessful, just wanting to touch the hem of his garment, how compassionate he was towards her, that that mercy, that grace was bestowed upon her, healing her instantaneously. Look at his kindness, how he fed the weary, hungry, lost multitudes, ministering to the sheep without a shepherd, just how he has administered his kindness toward you, leading you to repentance and life. Look at his humility. He took the form of a slave, a slave exchanging a crown of glory for a crown of thorns, bearing up under all forms and manners of persecutions that you and I will never face for the sake of your righteousness before God. Look at his meekness, his gentleness, how he dealt with these confused, honorary, perplexed disciples from time to time, his gentleness in the face of their ignorance, bearing up and under all forms of persecution, again, for the sake of your righteousness, but how often he is so gentle with us in our ignorance. Look at his patience when he was faced with such fierce religious opposition, betrayal by one of his own disciples, and then being handed over to his own people to be crucified, to be nailed up on a piece of wood, lifted up on a cursed tree to exchange his life, his righteousness for our sin. 
All of this we are to put on as we look to him. Abide in him, delight in him, worship him. And because of just how he first loved us is what we're going to look at and see today. So as I said several times previous messages, we are intentionally taking our time and making our way through this application in chapter 3 all the way through to chapter 4, verse 6. Of Paul's exhortation, his, his, both his, his imperatives and his indicatives to the Colossians. And, and another way to look at this is, is, is Paul's explication of the necessary spiritual renewing within that work within because of who we are now in Christ. And it is so that we may be careful and very aware of our natural tendencies to see and read this text as just a simple checklist of some personal accomplishment that God would accept us because of this. But rather, Paul has been reminding and exhorting us of who we are already in Christ as those accepted by him, loved by him. And he's given us, as we saw last time, some very specific examples of what we are to put off and to put on, what we are not to do and what we are to do in our daily lives and and in the reality of our weakness to do this with eyes of faith set upon the person and the work of Christ as our very source of grace. This is to be our objective and our experiential heart response to the only one who has chosen us, who has loved us, and set us apart to himself in this this new life. And where we are in a daily, ongoing, faith-filled effort in setting our affections of our soul upon Christ, Because it is him and him alone who supplies us with that daily grace we desperately need. Both to put on the virtues and the graces of Christ and to put off and mortify remaining sin at work in our bodies. But in a greater priority, a greater delight, of what I said as a a greater preoccupation with the lordship, the enjoyment, the worship of Christ, we're to put on his likeness his graces, these virtues. So we could, we could securely summarize what we've seen so far in chapter 3 by saying it's, it's the electing work of God that determines our character. It is through the, the consecration by God in the human soul as being the object of God's special grace and love that will result in holiness of life in, the, in his child. And now the the predetermined outcome of this great and glorious work of our salvation and our baptism is now to be being fit of, of being called together in Christ's church, in his body, locally and universally, but specifically locally, to live in harmony, to live in unity with the ultimate reality of one day we will all be revealed as his bride in glory. So what we're going to examine closely today, but not exhaustively, as much as I would love to do that, what we're going to look at is this outworking of life and love that's been brought about by our inward spiritual renewal, renovation, being made new. This is what is is truly called the alleluiam 
the one anothering. And Paul has taken us through the work of God and the individual spiritual rebirth of men and women and will show us now what it looks like to be worked out and lived in Christ's church, called as individually members of one another, is what he says in Romans 12, 5. And for those you're here with us, if you remember, even during our, our New Year's Eve time together, a prayer, we're reminded that we cannot take this church life for granted. It's not a matter of, well, let's just see how things work out, and if it happens, that we exist with some passive, indifferent attitude. No, our, our church life, the existence of Heritage Grace Community Church, it's, it's thriving, it's growth, it's continuation is not a foregone conclusion, but it is a labor of Christ's love, his grace, his virtues at work both in us and through us to one another. And if you remember last time in verse 12, we we discovered that these virtues of Christ are not and cannot be experienced or lived out in a vacuum. They don't promote Lone Ranger Christianity. They're not intended for a monastic life. It's not intended to be gifts received and never exercised. And it's not a religion of isolation and belief that we only know individually. It's how we as believers are to be clothed and how we are to interact, to strive with, as we're going to see, to put up with, to live with one another. And this is an eschatological precursor. It's what we just talked about in Sunday school, to our ultimate kingdom reality. So if we consider and look at just briefly here, what was Paul's ecclesiology? How did he look at the church, the temple? If he looks back at the Old Testament teaching on the temple and and, and, in anticipation, he sees it pointing to Jesus indwelling in the church as his indwelling spirit signifies that the church is God's new covenant temple. And Paul speaks to the Corinthian church. He says, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? In 1 Corinthians 3.16, and as the temple, his temple, the church is holy and to grow in his grace and in knowledge of him, and this growth, this growth we need to understand requires our involvement. And those that attempt to enter in and rise up to pervert, to destroy, to to lead away by deception, just what we've been seeing in, in Colossae, through whatever false teaching, through whatever perversion, through whatever slight offset of degree of the gospel truths, the word of God says they're going to be destroyed themselves. Remember Nadab and Abihu? What about Ananias and Sapphira? Do you see in this the preciousness of this temple of God? And Paul sees and understands that all these Old Testament prophecies and promises of the Lord dwelling with his people are now realized in the New Covenant Church. And this church must not tolerate association, partnership with idols or the world, but be with each individual member and as a corporate 
spiritually organic entity be both strategically and intentionally fixed upon Christ. For we also see in this temple theme expressed through these Old Testament promises and their fulfillment of God abiding with his people, that God did not intend to merely save individuals, but his desire, his intent is to reflect his glory through a corporate people, a chosen and beloved household, made inclusive through the work of Christ. And now, known as the church of Jesus Christ, we now enjoy the beauty and the joy of God's presence as we continue to to grow and be matured in Him by faith and knowing our King more and more and more. So, as those who have been chosen, who are beloved, who are now justified, sanctified, baptized, and being fit together, we are called to pursue holiness just as the one who has called us to himself and into his family. And what we've seen in chapter 3 so far, what I've discussed several times about these indicatives and the imperatives, is these indicatives being the foundation, the imperatives being the commands, that Paul instructs not only Colossian church, but it is his, his usage in the very letter to Corinth and Ephesus and Philippi, Thessalonica, Galatia, Rome, and to us as well, that it is for us to live upon the foundation of these indicatives so as to give preeminence and priority to Christ because of all he's done. And now by his same grace to strive, to pursue, to live, to enjoy the delight in his guardian and enriching commands that he's given us. But stop for a moment and ask yourselves, do you, do you share with me? There's, there's this tension that we find between the indicative, the imperative, what we've talked about many times, many occasions of that already not yet tension that we, we experience. Understanding who we are already in Christ, believing in that, walking in that, and more and more, but, but we are aware of this tension of what we are not yet or what we have not attained to in glorious final perfection. Because we, we cannot find in, in any of Paul's letters that his, his exhortation or his imperatives fall prey to any kind of legalism. For they are all rooted in the gospel and are all promises of God to us through Christ. They are yes and amen. But all of God's commands are rooted in what God has done for believers in Jesus Christ. For the imperative is rooted in the indicative. And each of God's blessings to the believer, to the child of God, through salvation, redemption, reconciliation, justification, sanctification, are both now and eschatological, ultimately in glorification. We are redeemed, and yet we wait for the redemption. We are justified by faith, yet we wait for our hope of righteousness on that last day, what Paul says in Galatians 5, 5. And this is why Paul continues to exhort us, to remind us in these letters, because if we were already perfected here and now, already knowing the perfection, the maturity of Christ, and we wouldn't need exhortations, we wouldn't need reminders to pursue holiness, to put on Christ, to put off the old man, to strive together in love, etc. 
But we need, all need this, and this is why we see in, in many places, like in 1 Corinthians 5, 6 to 8, in Paul says removing the old leaven by excommunicating the sinful man from the church, and yet he says, too, you are already unleavened. In Philippians 2, 12 to 13, we're exhorted to obedience, to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Yet Paul grounds this imperative in that indicative foundation that it is God who is at work in you both to work, to will, and to work for his good pleasure. But coming back to Colossians, Paul, he laid the foundation here for us in verse 2, chapter 2, verse 20, that we have died with Christ to the elements of the world, and in 3.1, that we have been raised up with Christ. And then in 3.5 and 3.8, he commands that we are to put to death the evil actions and attitudes of our heart and the attitudes and the words of our mouth. We are enjoined or enabled to do so in putting off the old man that we were in Adam because we have put on Christ, and we are to continue to put him on each new day. So this is that tension I, I, I was talking about between these indicatives and imperatives. But, but realize and, and search this out in, the, in these promises and commands that in every instance, we see that God has laid a sure foundation for us and through Christ that will fully support, that will fully enable these very sweet commands and exhortations to us in the body. Does this not show us just how precious the person and work of Christ is and his spirit sent to us to comfort and enable us to, to equip and illuminate and supply to us all that is needed in our spiritual sojourn? And you may be glimpsing here, though, though it may be dimly, that the wonders of the person of Christ, of of his magnificent beauty and the accomplished and supplying work on behalf of meager and needy creatures. There, there is for us no, no weakening and no exhausting the storehouse of the grace of Christ every day. It is enabled and, and available and in such great supply that it can never be exhausted. And think of these gracious and, and merciful virtues of Christ in this way. They're living demonstrations to us individually and corporately of just how God, through Christ, has been toward us. How he has considered with ever so great a patience and treated us with so great mercy and love that now we have been made new by his Spirit so that these virtues are now ours to share to pass along to one another in, in heartfelt intent and joy with patience and the likeness of Christ. And just as a brief review, we're seeing the same divine pattern here by Paul in chapter 1 to 3 and all the indicatives, all the foundational work of his enabling power. And then chapter 4 to 6, again, these imperatives in living our lives in Christ's graces and enabled by these indicatives, the supply of God. So now we see in our text today that Paul, he continues from verse 12 to 13 and into 14, expounding upon this exhortation. His, his imperatives to the Colossian church and to us, he gives three key attributes 
of this outworking of the graces of Christ. And I'm going to also use those as my, uh, the three main points of my, of my sermon of, of looking at what is the harmonious life in the church like? What does it look like? And it says we are to be forbearing, forgiving, and loving. I love the simplicity and the profundity of God's word in this. In the first one, it says, Paul says in verse 13, forbearing with one another or bearing with one another. Anekomeno. And Paul, Paul's exhortation here with this verb is for each member of one another in the church in Christ is really to bear with, to put up with, to endure with one another. And if we're completely honest with the examining power of this command, we know it's not an easy thing for everyone. In fact, the, the translation of this verb suggests a somewhat grudging willingness to put up with difficult circumstances or people. This is very similar to, to Jesus' question back to an unbelieving and perverse generation where he says in Matthew seven seventeen seventeen. Jesus answered and said, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I put, be with you? How long shall I put up with you? However, in, in Colossians, we have a very positive presentation of this verb and a closely linked parallel passage that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2, where he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience showing tolerance for one another in love. And what is key here is that the Christ-centered, spirit-wrought principle of love must be at work in our hearts in bearing with one another and putting up with one another. Our Christ-like love, the Christ-like love that we have received from the Spirit is that same love to be expressed to one another or other-minded love that looks like this. It will bear up under injuries received from one another without a revengeful thought, without a revengeful attitude, or even an outburst. However, when we've confirmed in our hearts the, the doctrine that Paul is expressing here in light of the life and the example of Christ, how much more should this be a reality for us in the church? First of all, what I mean is that Paul's use of the verb here is very specific, being that it carries with it a linear connotation, meaning that there's a a step-by-step upward progression in the growth of this forbearing, of this patience. And, And since it's also in the present tense, this forbearance, this putting up and enduring with one another from a loving heart is to be a continuous reality a daily reality, a weekly reality. It's an ever-ongoing heart attitude in our lives. And because Paul used this verb in, in a middle voice, it implies that if anyone is offended, anyone is provoked, anyone is insulted, we are called to hold up under this with a forgiving attitude until the issue's passed. But how, and, and really how and why, are are we to do this? Obviously, first and foremost, we have to look to Christ. Consider how he has put up with us, just how much love he has shown to us in the midst of forbearing with all our sin. 
with all of our selfish attitudes, with our neglect of him and our lack of love for him, our indifference and disobedience, to see how great his patience is with, with sinful corpses who hated him, and yet he chose to set his love upon us even before we were brought into this world and into our salvation. And just in the context of this letter, what Paul is dealing with, these false teachers, they were attempting to get a foothold in the hearts of these hearers in the way that they preyed upon that spirit of self-interest that is, that is so deeply rooted in our nature and the human heart. And it still lingers on even for a Christian. It is one of those things to be mortified. But the concern for us here to lay hold of is that our new relationship with Christ is inseparable from our new relationship with one another in the church. And it's even in this new relationship with Christ and with one another that there will be times when we are are blighted by an insult. We're accidentally excluded from a gathering. We're falsely accused or even ridiculed. But if we are putting on the virtues of Christ each day, there's no room for retaliation. There's no room for sharpness of temper or sharp retort. Whatever forbearance is exercised in this linear, ongoing attitude of the heart, not even the first angry word will be spoken in retaliation. Not even a sense of redress, but rather the response of our hearts and our thoughts are brought to the obedience of Christ, to love as we have been loved. And this, this putting up with one another catches the sense of, of an acceptance that requires within us an effort of the will. If we are honest at times, the, the actions and the attitudes and questions are sometimes immature and, and tiresome. And this, this forbearing response is here a piece of the positive response that Paul lays forth with a lot of practical wisdom when he is talking to the church in Rome, where he says to, to, in Romans 12, 9, all the way to, to 13, 10, that we are to be loving without hypocrisy. We're to be devoted to one another in love, blessing those who persecute you, and on and on. Same with the instructions he gave to Timothy and Titus for their churches, that 2 Timothy 2.14, he says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged. And Titus 3.1-2, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. But even in a still more demanding situation where where someone is clearly at fault and even deserving blame or or disapproval, situations that we as a church will likely find ourselves in, Paul connects this forbearing, this putting up with one another, so tightly, so integrated into a second point of forgiving. He says, in forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. This, this closely tied participial verb here, it's the same verb that Christ used back in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 13, where Christ, he having forgiven us all our transgressions. 
says that we are in like manner to be in an ongoing, continuous manner of karitzomenoi, forgiving each other, being able to, in light of whatever offenses, whatever the frequency of the offense toward us, to be being forgiving, having a readiness of heart to forgive even before we're offended. And Paul's use of the the pronoun he used here with this verb gives it a, a communal meaning, a forgiving of yourselves, forgiving one another. Not only are we to show humility and meekness and long-suffering as we forbear, whoever it is and whatever the offense, as Paul continues in verse 13, whatever the complaint may be, we are also to manifest what's called or considered the bowels of mercy and goodness to the offender in forgiving them and being ready to forgive. Turn over to Matthew 18 with me. I'm sure a lot of you are already there thinking about this passage. I'm not going to exegete the entire chapter, but I'll look into a small section of this passage just a little deeper. As I saw some things here I hadn't hadn't noticed, hadn't recognized before. Very helpful. Very correcting my own heart. Start in verse 15, Matthew 18, 15. Jesus says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall, be, shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, in the greater context of these verses, chapter 18 begins with this corporate question posed to Jesus about a comparative status of of who was greatest in the kingdom. And Christ's response was that that those who are great in the kingdom are those of humility, of of childlike faith, with a great warning to anyone who would cause any of his little ones to stumble into sin, which leads us into how we as individual disciples and the church are to respond when we see a brother or sister who sins with an intent of reconciliation to Christ and love. Of a, of a rescuing them back, and if necessary, corporately to deal with sin for the sake of the, of the peace, the purity, and the unity of the body. But then we see Peter, of course. He brings the tough questions. He brings the focus on himself, and, and he asks the question about how we are to deal with personal injury or insult 
when someone sins against us and how, just how often should we forgive that person? And what Peter brings out here is, is one of the chief causes of strife and disharmony within a group of disciples. When the actions or attitudes of wor- or words of one person is perceived to be against me when it is taken as a personal insult or assault. Now, the NASB gets it right here compared to the King James when, when looking at verses 12, 15 and 21. The King James adds the words against thee or against me in verse 15, which is, which is wrong. It creates this unnecessary tension between two sections that are necessarily linked. But there can be no incompatibility between a sincere pastoral concern or any disciple in the church over another person's sin and a willingness to forgive offenses against oneself. And if we try to, try to summarize verses 15 to 17, they are how, how we as members of the body of Christ in love and in humility toward one another are to go about preventing the loss of a member in our church to sin or how we are to have great concern over the spiritual well-being of, a sin, of, an, of an offending member. And in verses 21 to 22 are about the real dangers of allowing any personal animosity to poison the church and our church community, our church life, by not insisting on his or her own right to redress or to remedy. But if we look closely, specifically at verse 22, in light of Colossians 3.13, and the forgiving attitude, the hard attitude we're to have, consider this. If Peter's question reflected some conventional understanding of the, the reasonable limits of forgiveness, okay, whether it's three times or seven times or 490 times, we need to look at the response of Christ here when he says, I do, not, I do not say to you. And also how this functions back in Matthew 5, 21, where he says, but I say to you. Because Christ in these passages is setting before us a, a divine, radical, new covenantal standard against all these prudential conclusions of any conventional wisdom. I'm going to explain this further. What Christ is saying here in Matthew 18.22 and 5.21 shows that he's leaving the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees far behind. That The escalation here from 7 to 77 actually reflects back to the boast of Lamech in Genesis 4.24 where he says, if Cain is avenged sevenfold, surely Lamech is avenged 77-fold. But what does this mean for us in the new covenant as members of his church? It means that the disciple of Jesus Christ must be as extravagant in forgiving as Lamech was in vengeance. The language used here in Matthew is hyperbole. It's not of calculation. The concern is not over whether the figure should be 77 or 490. Actually, the Septuagint translates it 77. That's not what is important here. The concern, the meaning, the focus here, the bottom line is not the exact number. If that's the focus, you've missed the point altogether. 
The benchmark for us is provided further on in the unimaginable scale of God's forgiveness to his people. And Christ illustrates this further on in Matthew 18 with the huge debt that we discussed even in Sunday school between the master and the slaves. In other words, there is no limit. There is to be no place for keeping account of forgivenesses to one another. We don't have an account, a tally of how many forgivenesses we've issued to one another. Peter's question here is misconceived if anyone is still counting, however generously they may be counting. If you do that, then you're not forgiving. And this is what Paul gets to here in Colossians verse 13. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. We should be, we must be extravagant in our forgiving, keeping our minds and hearts in light of the unimaginable scale of God's forgiveness to us. We don't have a concept or a clue of how high the mountain of our sin extends, but we know how great the, the depth and the richness and the power of God's grace has been. This is what we exercise to one another in forgiveness. We're not to count any forgivenesses toward us, but with that incalculable forgiveness we receive from our Lord, we are in like manner as those who have been mercifully forgiven we're to have that same generosity of heart to be both ready and willing to forgive whatever the grievance, whatever the insult, whatever the sin, whether against you directly or in the church toward one another. Now, it doesn't say we don't deal with sin. That's another sermon that we'll discuss at another time in Matthew 18. But our heart attitude must be one of forgiveness. But we also need to see that there's not two sets of rules here. What I mean is there's not a rule under which God relates to us through forgiveness and a different rule for us through which we relate to one another where forgiveness is an option for us. No, any believer who has received forgiveness from God through Jesus Christ must then forgive and be forgiving from the heart. Just in the Lord's instructional prayer, As we've been forgiven, we are to forgive one another the sins committed against us. For both of these rules, if you will, both of these levels are essential for life in the body. Just another way of saying this is that forgiveness and forgiving has at the heart of its desire that rescuing, that reconciliation of another from spiritual danger being both unwilling to allow insult to stir up strife and dissension and work to protect one another from the dangers of sin and bitterness. As again, we are to forgive one another just as Christ the divine has, had the, has the divine prerogative to forgive us. And he's made, oh, such a full provision for it. He's fully exercised it upon the account and soul and life of the believer. And we must follow his example in like manner. Because Matthew 18.35 concludes that we must forgive one another from our heart, again, manifesting those bowels of mercy. And finally, Paul continues this imagery of putting on Christ, of putting on the virtues of his, his clothing of grace, if you will, when he says effectively in the first part of verse 14, 
upon all these things, or these things, love. Which brings us to our third point, loving. To put on Christ's love, to be, be truly loving in a Christ-like manner is not so much as, as adopting some virtue of love as, as in addition to what all we've seen in verse 12, but the use, Paul's use of this clothing imagery, of this putting on, there's, there's with the use here of this prepositional phrase of putting on this, this supreme, this glorious, this virtuous garment, this, this crowning grace of love on top of all the others and binding them together. It is, it is, love is this binding, unifying sash, if you will. And it's also called the, the motive power of faith. What I mean by that, this, this motive or reasoning power of faith is, is what we find in Galatians in, in chapter 5, verse 6, for it says that Christ, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. Now, Paul is, is not saying here, or doesn't mean to imply that faith, even though it is faith in Christ, just considered by itself will somehow automatically express itself in love through us. Now, it has, it has a greater dependency and foundation upon that justifying work in the believer's life by the Holy Spirit. And what Paul reveals in Galatians 2.16 and following is, is this experiential reality that the objective faith in Christ, which is, of course, a gift from God, is what, make, is what justifies a sinner into right standing with God. And it also marks the beginning of a new life whose principal power is Christ alone through his spirit. However, in, in the believer's experience, we've got to realize this. Christ is not distinguishable from the Holy Spirit, meaning we don't see, like in Romans 8, 9, that Paul says, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. We don't see here a distinguishable activity which is described to Christ at one time and at another time to the Holy Spirit. We see both God's Spirit and Christ being synonymous with the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. The dwelling of Christ in us through the Holy Spirit is the Spirit equally of the Father and the Son. And it is in this communion of our new life in Christ that these characteristics become ours. Key there, communion with Christ by the Spirit. These characteristics become ours. Thus, the the faith which justifies also marks a new life in the believer whose principle and power is the Holy Spirit. And where justification by faith at the moment of reception is also the moment of the reception of the Spirit. I know you guys know this. This is foundational, but this this is a building block. Through which the Spirit's presence, power, and work, there is a harvesting of love in the believer's life, right? Right? Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love. And in a broader sense, a new life now of love through the ongoing activity of the Spirit within. And summarizing what Paul is after here, that faith operates through love because and only because 
it is the gift of faith, which is the means of our justification, also at the same time receives the Spirit through whom Christ dwells within each believer. Who then is the principal and producer of a new life of love? First reality, this is not something for the natural man. This is not something we're born with out of the womb. This is only by a spiritual regeneration. This is a glorious and merciful and majestic work of the Holy Father. Where, as I said, as we prayed, as we're teaching, it intrudes upon the souls of unworthy, unexpecting sinners, where he sends his holy, precious Holy Spirit to reveal the person and work of Christ in our hearts, to render this washing and regenerative work and resulting in a life of love for God and for one another. And this love now being that supreme Christian grace, it is the summation of all these commandments. It is the fulfilling of the law. It is the law of Christ because love does nothing but good to a neighbor and to an enemy. Without this spirit-wrought love, all these other graces become nothing but glittering sins. For there, there is within the natural heart of man, woman, and child, there is a power of affectionateness, if I can make up that word. We possess naturally an affection, but no one, no man, possesses naturally the spirit love of God and a genuine love for one another. Naturally, there's always a secondary motive behind our love, is there not? I'll do this, but what do I get out of it? It is only the precious fruit of the Holy Spirit of God at work in the believer that is just as we said, comes by the gift of faith in Christ. Without this love, without this binding sash woven through these virtues present within the individual and corporate life of the church of God, mercy would degenerate into mere weak sentimentality. Knowledge would be nothing but selfish acquisition. Holiness would be just an attempt at personal gain. Kindness would be a a foolish extravagance. Humility would would really be just mock self-depreciation, just another form of of pride and egotism. Long-suffering would be nothing more than dull stupidity. This precious fruit of the Holy Spirit of God, with love being this this grand element, is the means by which all uh, these other graces, these other virtues of Christ move and from which they all derive their vitality, their zeal, their vigor, their value. Spirit-wrought love is the grace which redeems all other from the curse of selfishness and is of itself most selfless. But what Paul is speaking of here when he says at the end of verse 14 about this spirit-wrought love, which is the perfect bond of unity, Paul is using a a similar term here that he used back in chapter 2, verse 19, where he talks about this sundesmos, this bond, this connecting ligament that binds 
when he was talking about the members of the body, how we're fit together, how we're joined, how we're supported by one another, and how we are in that being matured in Christ as we are striving for that final protection in him. But what Paul is after here in verse 14 is for the Colossian church to see that this love and only this love is strong enough to hold together this church and any congregation of such disparate individuals. This, this tying, this binding together in love is what denotes the, the completeness, the maturity of a community of believers who have as their only source and example the archetype in Christ of what, of what such maturity and love life life should be what it looks like, what example he provides, and what the reality of it that we're called to. If you remember back in, in chapter 1, verse 17, Christ holds all things together. Not only is the secret to the harmony of the created universe, but very pointedly, very practically for us, Paul is, is, is after our being brought to perfection and because it is in our new self, in this new community of believers, of those who have re- realized this new humanity in Christ, where Paul says no nationality has a bearing. Those who are of the true circumcision and, and no religious heritage who are held together by Christ alone through his love. It doesn't matter where you, if you've been in another church for 30 years or if this is your first church. There's no religious seating no social cultural status and no economic status, not, not even our created gender, but where all things that, that, that the world and the natural man values in a person, they crumble as we become members in the body of Christ, where Christ is all and, and in all. That we, as those who have been chosen by God, as those who are now the recipients of this mysterious, just liberty of God, as those who are now holy and beloved of God, will be brought to perfection, will be brought to maturity. When and where love is binding all these virtues together in our lives because of Christ, because of his spirit, through his salvation, by his grace through faith. So our, Pastor Amelia and I, our linear, our ongoing prayer, our desire, our delight, is that we all may continue to grow in the new inner man, that we will be maturing deeply in the grace and knowledge of Christ to be and walk and live holy and blameless before him in, in, in all manner, in all areas of life not just between 1.30 and 4.30 on Sunday, Sunday night, Monday morning, Wednesday afternoon, every moment of every day. And that as we live out our lives, we put on these daily virtues and graces that we will bear with one another. We will put up with one another in love. We will be willing and prepared to forgive one another in love that through what, we, what may be many offenses and maybe many trials for us, that that immutable love we have received from Christ alone will fill and overflow, that we will be 
we will know the fullness of Christ, that we will be clothed in all these virtues and they will be at work within us, fitting us together at Heritage Grace to his glory, to our ultimate perfection, and for the sake of a lost and dying world. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, really, Lord, for the the clarity and the, the simplicity of the gospel and, and your instructions to us. But Father, that, that tension within us makes us realize how utterly dependent we are upon Christ and his grace to make these virtues of our beloved Savior and King the reality in our lives. I pray, Father, Father, I pray that our, our prayers would be for this grace, would be for these virtues, would be for this growth in the knowledge and the grace of Christ, bound in love, bound in his love for you and one for another. And that the testimony of this love through the proclamation of the gospel through the reflection of Christ from our hearts to this world, will bring many more into your kingdom. May we advance upon the gates of hell with a forgiving heart, a rescuing heart, a bold heart, equipped and empowered by you alone. May we glory in our weaknesses, Father, that you may be exalted and that your grace alone may abound in and through us. For your name's sake, Father, for your glory, and, O oh Lord, for our good. We ask all this in Jesus' holy, holy name. Amen.